Well, hello and welcome. I am Guy Stevens with the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint, and thank you for joining us for another uh, Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint live event. Uh, I am actually in a different place today, which if you usually are watching the uh, show, uh, you probably know well that I usually have the Alliance uh, uh, banner over my shoulder, and, and today I'm in a different place. I actually happen to be traveling, and I'm in Virginia today, in Winchester, Virginia. Uh, so I am uh, working a, a little bit differently today, not being in my usual space, uh, but we are going to have a great show today, so I'm really excited to have you. Uh, for those of you that are not aware, the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint was an organization that I started about three and a half years ago. Uh, the purpose of the organization is really raising awareness and, and helping to facilitate change around a lot of things that are being done to children. Uh, very often in the name of behavior, whether it's restraint or seclusion or suspension or expulsion or even corporal punishment, uh, we're really trying to shift away from the punitive things that are being done to kids into better ways of supporting children and ultimately better ways of supporting teachers and staff as well. Uh, ultimately, hopefully having an impact and ending the school to prison pipeline. Uh, these are things that we want to see change. And we do that both through legislative work as well as through education, like this event that you're joining us for today. So with that said, uh, let me tell you what we're going to be doing today. Uh, as always, uh, I get really excited about the guests that we have, because we have some amazing people that I've had the opportunity to get to meet and work with and uh, have a ton of respect for. And today is notion to that. Uh, today, I have Angie Zara joining us for a special interview. And Angie is an educator, but so much more. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Angie here in a moment. Uh, I've had the uh, privilege, I guess, of knowing Angie for a couple of years now, and uh, we've collaborated on a couple of things. Uh, but I think you'll really enjoy today's discussion. It's really going to be kind of an interview format. Uh, and let's even get rid of that. It's really going to be a discussion format. We're going to have a talk, and you all are invited to uh, join in and ask questions or uh, share any thoughts that you might have. As always, I want to point out that the session today is being recorded, so uh, you'll be able to go back and look at it on YouTube, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, or download it as an audio podcast. I uh, do want to make you aware that you can put your questions and comments uh, in the chat, so if you see the comment button over there, you can go ahead and put your uh, comments that you might have. Uh, for now, though, go ahead and introduce yourself in the chat. Tell us who you are and where you're from. Uh, it's always great to see where we have people joining us from and uh, would love to hear about uh, where you're joining us from today. So go ahead and tell us in the chat who you are and where you're from. And let me introduce you now uh, to our very special guest. I'm really excited to have uh, Angie here today. She, of course, is going to share a little bit about her journey from a teacher to a social emotional learning specialist. Uh, and, and Angie is somebody that... Um, well, um, for the best way to put it, has, has created positions uh, that didn't even exist before in response to seeing needs, uh, needs in the schools that she's been working in. Uh, and, and that's sometimes what it takes, is it takes somebody to come in and, and change things and uh, do things for the better. So um, uh, Angie is a D.C.-based educator uh, with a philosophy rooted in trauma-responsive care, inclusion, and racial and social equity. 
Uh, Angie holds her master's in education from Trinity Washington University and completed her certification in the Applied Educational Neuroscience Program at Butler University in 2020. And that is, I believe, how we met was through the Applied Educational Neuroscience Program. Uh, I had the privilege of speaking uh, to a couple of the cohorts that have been through that program and uh, the privilege of meeting a number of amazing educators that have gone through that. Uh, beginning in the 22-23 school year, uh, which would be now, Angie um, has a new uh, position and a new title as a social emotional learning specialist at her school. Uh, and this is a brand new role and one that uh, she really championed uh, for school leaders to create. And, you know, this work that she's been doing is really to have uh, an impact to better support kids uh, through consistent modeling and her practice advocacy and shared research and trauma responsive care. Uh, she is a pioneer uh, in the position of SEL specialist and a trailblazer uh, as a trauma-informed leader and someone that I am very lucky to know and have had a chance to work with. Uh, Angie, it's so great to have you here today, and I just want to thank you for uh, joining us. Thank you so much, Guy. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, I just want to let people know that are already on the uh, the live stream to go ahead and tell us who you are and where you're joining us from. But I will mention already, Angie, that there are a couple of people, maybe even some you know, like Dustin Springer from Kansas City. Uh, uh, we, we know Dustin. Dustin was here with us last time. Uh, we have Bree, uh, an advocate and parent from New Jersey. Uh, friend here, Jennifer Abinat from Davis, California. Uh, we typically have people that are joining us from all around the world. Um, it's not unusual that we have people from Australia, from New Zealand, from the UK. Um, so as you're getting on, if you're from one of those places, uh, help, help me show Angie that I'm, I'm not making this up. We, we really have people from, from all over the place. Uh, and I see my friend uh, Mickey uh, joining us from Austin. Uh, so Angie, thanks so much for making some time today. Um, you know, as I mentioned, as we were doing your intro, uh, I got to know you because you were involved in a applied educational neuroscience uh, program at Butler University, uh, taught by somebody that we're both a huge fan of, who told me, by the way, that she was traveling today, but she was excited about your presentation and was going to try to jump on. Uh, and that's Dr. Lori Desitels. Uh, for those that aren't familiar, um, Lori's actually, I think she's been our most frequent guest on our program, I think five or six times now. We've had Lori or people that Lori's work with. Uh, Lori is an educator and, of course, a, a pioneer, really, in applied educational neuroscience, uh, teaches a complete program uh, in applied educational neuroscience at Butler. And, you know, one of the things I found through that program, aside from finding you, um, is that the people that are going through that program are all amazing. Uh, all the people that I've met that have gone through that, um, all are people that I think are pushing changes in education. Um, so at, at any rate, um, with, with that said as an intro, I, I just want people to kind of understand this. Would you mind telling people, because you know, you've got a lot of history and we'll get to all of that, but that Applied Educational Neuroscience Program, can you tell us a little bit about that and what appealed to you about that program and, and how maybe it transformed your approach as an educator? Sure. So um, as many people in this network that I've come to get to know, um, who I'd heard about previously and then got to know in this trauma-informed network, um, may know that once you start to understand trauma-informed practices, especially in the context of education, um, something just clicks. 
and your eyes are open to just a brand new world of a different level of understanding, responsiveness, and frankly, like strategies that you can just add into your toolkit as an educator. So as I, you know, immersed myself in the trauma network, I uh, started seeking out higher um, higher education programs. Um, I would say I found the Trauma-Informed Network in 2016, which was my second year in the classroom um, when I had huge behaviors that I did not have the tools to respond to yet and could not find other leaders or advocates to help me. So I just started digging into the research myself. And in 2019, um, through the Trauma Network, I was seeking master's programs to get maybe a master's in trauma-informed education, um, things like that. And the Twitterverse just kind of opened um, my eyes and I somehow managed to, someone referred me to Dr. Lori or I saw her tweet somewhere and um, I just asked her about about her program and the neuroscience program. Um, I had known that neuroscience is tied to the trauma community. Um, I think I, you know, soon into my trauma informed immersion, I read Dr. Bruce Perry's Mm. book and, you know, my life was changed even more. And so once I learned about the program, it just almost felt, um, like the universe just kind of lines things up for you. And so once I started to learn about Dr. Lori's work, I learned about the program and I read the description. I thought this is exactly what I'm looking for. Here's a built-in community. Um, Here's a trailblazing leader in the trauma network who is facilitating these courses, who created this program. And so, you know, it's almost like once your eyes continue to open, uh, closing them is not an option. (laughs) So that was kind of how I dug into the program. And then it just took off from there. Um, Like you said, every single cohort member or speaker that I met in that program just became a part of my network and my community, um, my professional community. And it, you know, it just snowballed mm-hmm. into a different level of momentum mm-hmm. um, that I'm so grateful for. But ultimately, uh, do I, I don't think I would have been able to create the position that I've created at my school without, you know, having the expertise that I gained from Dr. Lori's instruction, mm-hmm. the program, and the network that I had to empower. You know, when you're full of a network of innovative change makers, um, you know, it, it helps the the doubt subside. So. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, so, so let me go back in time a little bit more here. Uh, but before I do, I'm just going to, I'm going to share a few more things here. We have uh, Shelly uh, joining us from Iowa, former alternative uh, trauma-informed educator, uh, and now an advocate and mentor. Uh, love the connection of SEL and neuroscience, uh, connecting with trauma-informed. Uh, Kat asked a question, and, and this might be a little ahead of us, but um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let you uh, take a, a swing at it anyway. Uh, does your classroom use a point and level system uh, for all students? And of course, uh, what I know is that you're not only, you're no longer just the, cl- you know, I don't want to say just a classroom teacher, you're no longer really focused in the classroom. You're, you're focused in a different role, but thinking about, um, well, thinking about what I know about you and thinking about uh, the work that you would have done and then people that you're working with now, uh, how would you respond to, you know, incentives, point and level systems, things like that? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question that honestly has come up, you know, with the teachers that I work with at my school. So I work with students from pre-K, so three through 10. Um, so pre-K through fourth grade is the are the grade levels that my lower school um, 
encompasses. And uh, when it comes to classroom-based um, incentive systems, my response is typically thinking about the goal that we're trying to achieve when it comes to student pro-social classroom behavior. And so what I think is really challenging sometimes when we think about how the school system was built, when we think about, you know, what we perceive or have been conditioned to think as is conducive to learning, which is typically, you know, very white Eurocentric compliance driven behaviors. Um, when I think of using a point system to reinforce those behaviors, uh, it feels counterproductive to what is what I think, what I know my goal is as an educator and what I assume other teachers and educators' goal is, which is to co-facilitate the um, independence and autonomy to create helpful, functional members of a thriving society, right? And so in order to do that, um, we need to empower students and set up students with like real... Uh, what's the word I'm looking real, real skills, right? Mm -hmm. So like we don't need compliance driven skills. We don't need a student to listen and then hear a ding from class dojo to know right. that like they are doing what they need to do in order to earn a specific um, response from their right. teacher or approval right. from their teacher. Right. Um, I do very much believe in like co-creating measurable goals as a community to create joy. So if we are thinking about reading stamina and as a community, we're attempting to achieve 30 minutes of reading stamina through, you know, the through reading habits, which would be your eyes are on your book, maybe you're whisper reading, maybe, you know, you're looking up while you're thinking, but, but, you know, so if we're exhibiting those specific behaviors, which are habits of readers, right, which is something that we would like mm -hmm. readers to do, um, and at the end of that goal, we get a great pizza party and we get to like, you know, each go to the book and pick out a lot like a library, a library book that we're really interested in. Those incentives make much more sense because we're really thinking about specific goal setting and like habits of learning right. as opposed to compliance driven behaviors. So right, right, right. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm with you 110%. I mean, you know, we are very opposed to kind of the compliance based approaches that are very prevalent. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, um, rewarding consequence driven behavioral approaches that that I would not only are ineffective uh, for many kids, they can be harmful to a lot of kids as well, especially when we're talking about kids with a trauma history, kids with a disability, Disabilities, uh, yeah. kids who these, yeah, these may not be working for a couple more comments. And then, then I want to head to where we, I was headed here. Uh, Shelly also said, I have a neuroscience background as well. Happy to see that. Happy to see more people uh, getting more of a background in the neuroscience. I'm a firm believer. And I think, Angie, you probably would be too. I think a little bit of neuroscience goes a long way. If you oh, begin yeah. to understand a little bit about how the brain works, it totally changes the way you look at a kid and the way you look at behavior. And I think that's such an important shift for people. Um, Jennifer said, you cannot look back once you become knowledgeable about trauma. Uh, I have uh, Leonard Webb. Leonard actually uh, speaks about trauma-informed uh, care and the school to prison pipeline, and he is in Maryland. Um, See, behaviors come from many places. It's up to those around the individual to understand what's beneath the surface. Uh, yeah, and then which is so very, very true. So a lot, of, a lot of people jumping in here with a lot of comments. But let me take you back in time for a second. How did you, 
how did you get into teaching? Did you always know you wanted to be a teacher? What, what got you to being a teacher? Or if there's a who, you know, tell us about that as well. How did you, um, how did you make that decision to take a road into education? Yes. Yeah, so it's actually a really interesting story that a, a definitely embodies a big part of my personal journey. Um, I have personally experienced um, addiction. I am in recovery from alcohol. I'm almost eight years sober. Um, so during my, I've experienced severe mental health issues, um, severe depression, anxiety, um, which manifested into really poor coping strategies through um, alcoholism. And uh, basically, as soon, so I was living in the Midwest. I went to school in the Midwest and um, I hit what's called like your emotional rock bottom um, in Chicago, which where I was living. And I ended up coming home to Washington, D.C., where I live now um, and entering a, a rehab, an outpatient rehab for eight weeks. And within, within week four of my outpatient, um, something, again, the universe just pulls us in certain different ways. I remember learning about neuroplasticity for the first time in rehab, um, the brain's ability to rewire. Uh, a part of my journey now, of course, is I always say I'm living proof of neuroplasticity given my sobriety. Um, but something about being back in DC, it was almost like once I was able to be sober and the the clouds, you know, cleared and I was able to kind of live within my true identity within a week or uh, four weeks, I realized that my only purpose was to be in education. Mm -hmm. um, by the end of my outpatient program or within, no, within a year of my outpatient program, I was looking at master's programs for education, realizing that um, I want to teach kids in DC. Uh, it's just what I felt like seemed like the only clear possibility for me. Um, I don't think that there's anything else that I'm meant to do. Uh, so I kind of, I don't want to say I ended up being a, an educator, but just once the the clouds cleared away, um, it just the universe just pointed me in the direction of my of my path that I was supposed to take. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, there was a time that um, you know I might have looked at that idea of the universe pointing us where it wants to uh, a little more skeptically. Um, but I can tell you that my life has changed, and I think the universe called me to be in a different direction. I spent 25 years in the environmental field, never planning to to shift direction or to do something different. And of course, you know, I had a personal experience with my son that led me to doing a lot of research and trying to understand what was happening in our schools and in our discipline systems and, you know, how they were impacting children. So I'm very much a believer now that the, the mm -hmm. universe has told me where I need to be. And, and here I am. Um, and I'm glad the universe appointed you in that direction because uh, I know you are uh, an amazing and a very inspirational uh, educator and you're doing some great things. And uh, I think it's so important. So you mentioned specifically kind of like, you know, I wanted to teach kids in DC mm -hmm. uh, in the very early part of my career, actually, when I was actually a fisheries biologist, there you go, uh, I worked in D.C. and I occasionally visited schools throughout D.C. presenting information about the environment and the bay and fish and all of that. And I always enjoyed going into the schools and working with kids. Um, what about D.C.? What, what was it about D.C. that made you want to go there and support kids? 
Yeah, well, it's my hometown. Um, I'm born and raised in D.C. Um, I'm a public school D.C. graduate. Um, and if you know about D.C. public schools, you know, being a proud D.C. public school graduate, like we just have a lot of pride for like our city and our schools, even though, sure. you know, what, however the school system is, is how it is. Um, I uh, have a, a really good friend who whose dad owns a, a very popular business in Washington, D.C., and every year they would take um, kids from the neighborhood to um, to the beach for like a kid's beach trip. Um, and I remember one year I went as a volunteer and I remember if you know about teaching city kids and taking them, you know, to the beach, like I just remember I was like, that was wild. Like when I got home, I was like, mm. I'm exhausted. That was crazy. But I would do that again. Like there's something that I about that where like the level of intensity just felt like appropriate. Um, that was, I think, when I was in college. So I would there would still be several more years until I was able to kind of like, you know, come to my full path. But mm -hmm. it just felt very natural. Um, I feel like I understand DC kids. Um, I am a DC kid. Uh, I feel like um, just my background in um, my parents and their uh, social justice work and mm -hmm. just my mindset. Um, you know, I've always been a city girl and uh, why you know, why not teach city kids in my hometown? Uh oh, guy might be frozen. So since guy, oh, there he is. Hey, I, I apologize about that. No problem. Um, you, be, being in a different place. In fact, I, I'm, I'm glad we came back. Uh, I'm on a, a strange internet connection, which is not working the way it's supposed. So uh, I, I think I got a good part of your response, and then he disappeared. I apologize. Yeah, no problem. Um, so let, let's talk about you know, kind of when we get the you know the why that, that led you there, and you know you, when you first got into education. Um, you know, because I know that, you know, you talked a minute ago about kind of the, the transformation that happened as you became kind of trauma informed and brain aligned and, and kind of moving. But let's talk about when you first started. Um, you know, what were some of the challenges and um, what was it like when you began as a teacher? Did you feel like you were even appropriately equipped for the job that you were doing? Yeah. So, I mean, fortunately, the, the program that I came up through um, allowed us to have one year of, I guess it would be considered pre-service. So I had a mentor teacher um, who was able to kind of coach me along in my mm. first year. So um, my first year with uh, a mentor teacher was really successful and I learned a lot of things and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, the first year that I was on my own um, as my own teacher of record in my class, um, I taught third grade and I, I quickly, um, again, like I said earlier, saw behaviors that I was not expecting to see. So for example, I saw um, a lot of self-harm in my third grade class. Uh, I saw suicide or I heard and, and witnessed suicidal ideation, um, attempts at self-harm and self-harm, um, very, you know, physical fighting, um, a lot of elopement and I did not feel equipped. I did not feel equipped. And, and oftentimes I would, I would ask administrators or colleagues, you know, what are some strategies? What can I do? I, I don't know mm -hmm. what to do. And, and I was met with, um, 
you know, I didn't feel like the, the answers that I was met with, not to anyone, not to say anything negative about anyone, but I just don't think that people had the toolkit yet. Right, um, right. And so, you know, I didn't feel like I was equipped. Um, I did have a lot of supports, but I think sometimes depending on the the background and the understanding and, and experience of the leadership that you have, they may not have the answers to based on their experiences and classroom experiences to equip teachers with what they may see in real time. I mean, the, the real answer is I teach in a title one full inclusion school that serves all wards in Washington, DC, um, which means that there certainly will be big behaviors and manifestations of disabilities that are, you know, can, you know, put harm on adults and children, um, not because of ill intent, but because of just, you know, mm -hmm, how things mm -hmm. manifest in behaviors. So, um, you know, I, that's why I turned to the trauma community, because if I couldn't figure it out in my school network, then in my mind, it was either I stopped teaching or I find a, another way. And luckily, it, it, I found that way. <laughs> that, that, that's such a great point, because, you know, certainly these have been challenging times, right? These have been challenging times in education. Uh, the pandemic, uh, many other things that have been going on have made for very challenging times. Um, and we know that there are people that are, you know, first year, second year teachers that are leaving the profession, a profession that they had really hoped to pour their lives into um, because they're not sure what to do. And, and you, you bring up that great point about, uh, you know, sometimes we're looking for answers from from those that might have seniority or been there longer. But the, the problem is that schools, like anything else, are sometimes places where we keep doing the same things, even though they're not working. Mm. Uh, and, you know, many times those things are based around compliance and control. It's around, you know, how do we control situations? How do we get the kids to comply? Um, but but you kind of looked at, you know, the the options and what you and said, this doesn't there's got to be something else, right? So that started your journey into what else is there and what can I do differently? So what advice would you have for, you know, a teacher, young teacher uh, gets into the right reasons, wants to help kids, is in a really punitive culture or punitive school, but knows there must be a better way. What do they do? How, how do they make that journey? Because I'm sure you have tough days, but I also know from our conversations that you love doing what you're doing and that you continue to have more and more, um, ideas and influence in, in, in how to make things better. So what would your advice be for somebody that's, you know, kind of starting off and struggling? I think the power of community is so important. And I think that in a school building or in a field, there has to be at least one person that can offer support or strategies to help build that toolbox for a new teacher. Um, so always my advice and my advice to my staff that I work with is ask for what you need, ask for support. Because if we do not ask for what we need and we don't ask for help, then we are not in an, you know, in a place to grow and, <laughs> and pivot and respond accordingly. Something else that I, um, recommend, like if I were to be speaking to a new teacher who's watching this, who, you know, may have anxiety about responding to a tier three behavioral crisis, or maybe there's okay. physicality with the student. Um, 
I, I also think that making a response plan to center your own wellness is something that is really important mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, like we have to stay regulated when we respond to these behaviors because otherwise our stress response system will be activated. It will have negative impacts on our brain and body state. And ultimately we will not be able to serve our students. So something that I offer my teachers when I notice that they may be grappling with how to respond to a crisis is, well, first of all, because of the nature of my position and the fact that it's very new and I can kind of create it as I go, I would literally sit beside and co-regulate a teacher in a crisis to model how to remain calm and, um, you know, how to respond appropriately and depersonalize the behavior. Or if that's not feasible, like let's make a crisis response plan for yourself. What are some strategies that you're going to do? What deep breathing are you going to tap into? Who's a colleague that you can ask to come in to support you in your classroom because you need to just take five minutes to do the strategies that we tell our students to do. Splash some water on your face, do some positive self-talk, like, you know, schedule your mental health day and then like, let's get back in there and build that resilience. So I would say, yeah, seek the support. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, I love that. So, um, you know, you, you had your personal journey, you, you decided you wanted to teach, you get into teaching, you realize some of the gaps there, some of the challenges there, you begin to look for, what fills those gaps. You begin to look for community. You get into the trauma-informed space. Um, what's what's the key to the transformation there? So at some point, you know, there's this, something clicks, right? At some point, you know, you find that thing that maybe was missing or that understanding that was missing. What was it for you? I mean, what was it that began to make that really click and you, you, your realization that, oh, there's a, there's a different way, there's a better way. Is there anything specific that you can recall that kind of helped you along that road? I mean, ultimately, my guiding core values in this field is like my belief in sh- a child's capacity to do well if they can. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm responsive to data and research. I think as, like you said, with the neuroscience, as we start to look into brain states and we start to just take a small chunk of the research and implement strategies. And then you start to see that they become, they're effective, right? They work. That's when you start to have like the hope and you're like, wait, so if I continue to, to implement these strategies on a regular basis, like with myself and with children, like what might happen? Right. So if you truly believe that kids can do well and that inherently children want to do well, they're wired to, to want to do well, they're inherently good beings, then, then, you know, uh, that's an important piece, right? Yeah. You, you know, very often people look at kids and they think they're manipulative. They're limit testing. They're challenging. They're, they're all of these things. Uh, but, you know, they, they don't realize that these are human beings that have been through sometimes trauma, sometimes stress, sometimes have, you know, a manifestation of a disability. Um, you know, it's important to remember, you know, kids don't have fully developed brains, especially very young kids. They don't have the skills they need to self-regulate. Um, so that that philosophical change is really important one that that acknowledgement that, you know, a kid would do well if a kid could do well is a really important thing to do. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I can see how that is transformative. I know in my own journey, kind of some of the, the transformation with that as well. Um, so you get back, you know, you, you begin to get some of this knowledge. You begin to go through the applied educational neuroscience program. You're still in the classroom at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, what what happens? What are the changes that you see? So from the knowledge that you're getting, 
because you know knowledge is one thing, but application is another, right? So we can mm-hmm. we can learn something. We can oh, I, I know this, but to be able to take it and to apply it and to make um, improvements that are helping the kids that you're serving, that are helping yourself, what that look like? What did it look like as you began to apply knowledge that you were learning um, into your classroom as you were still a teacher at that point? Yeah, I mean, a lot of trial and error, a lot of, you know, it's the same kind of concept where you're maybe learning a really great new math strategy and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited to try this. And then you try it and it's not perfect, but there's a little bit of progress and maybe one kid has a positive outcome, right? And it really clicks. Um, and so just, you know, the willingness again to keep trying. Um, I think... I, something else that I that I received that was really helpful was, you know, I did have, um, again, like having a community where you can try and then reflect and then try again, I think is really important. Um, I think being willing to be like observed is also something that can be really important with these strategies. Um, I'm sorry, I just had a total brain fart. Would you mind asking the second part of the question again? Oh gosh, now, now, now you're really going to. Um... <laughs> Sometimes um, yeah, I just uh, get lost in the sauce. So, so w- w- what I was re- really trying to figure out is after going out and finding your community, and yeah. and you know um, how that how you brought that to the classroom, how you brought about changes because of what you were beginning to learn and your your kind of philosophical change. So, what that looked like. I mean, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so how did that manifest in terms of working with the kids on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. So, I mean, it's really just taking the practices that like, if I'm learning about focus attention practices mm-hmm. and, um, you know, mindfulness, and I'm literally getting a tool from my program that says, here's a focus attention practice that I've done with children that we're modeling in class as a community of learners. I would take that focus attention practice. And the next morning I would say, okay, guys, this is something that I've learned. Again, that modeling piece of like, I'm a learner. And so I want to try this with you. And maybe this won't be helpful for you, but maybe it will be helpful for one person in here. Mm-hmm. And if it helps one person, and I know that it helps me, then like, that's a win. And mm-hmm. then maybe tomorrow we'll try a new strategy, right? And then it's really just about like, then I just be but was able, you know, when you model the practices that you want learners to see. Mm-hmm. It's the same transfer of knowledge in a way, like in literacy and in math, only you're modeling regulation, you're modeling risk-taking, you're modeling coping strategies. So it's just aligns with the principles of education, right? If we have our community of learners and we are modeling and teaching these practices, these strategies, why would they not catch on in the same ways we expect this entire school system to run, where we expect mm-hmm. math strategies and literacy strategies to take with student brain, like students' mm-hmm. brains. So mm-hmm. it's just applying the same principles, but just in a, you know, very specialized way that helps oh. construct again, those like helpful functioning, you know, members of society. So it's just, you know, the ability to take risks model vulnerability and transparency and, be willing to fail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I love that. Um, and, and you know, again, you know, a willingness to fail means that you you try things, and not everything may not work for every student, right? But when you are able to connect with a student, and I think the principles, the principles, and the philosophy that you you brought in, kind of after really, um, you know, 
finding the approaches that that align with you, those are so critical, right? Uh, I want to get to in a second, I want to get to, you know, kind of what happened next. But before I do, there's been a lot of chatter and I don't want to uh, don't want to miss it all. Um, so I'm going to go through a couple of these comments and questions real quick. Uh, Karen Burrs, who is an amazing special educator in Oregon, uh, said, I jumped on late looking at, for the higher education. What program is this? Uh, and Karen, I believe what we were talking about at the time that you might have caught us was the Applied Educational Neuroscience uh, program by Dr. Lori Desatels at Butler University. And I've just put that in the chat as well. So you'll be able to see that. Uh, that's a program that not only has Angie been through, but our guest last week, uh, Dr. Uh, Dustin Springer, had been through as well. And several of the people that we've um, you know, interviewed have I've done this as well. Uh, Shelly says, thank you for speaking on this topic. Uh, let's see what else we have here. Um, let's see. Um, all right. Um, uh, so uh, Kat had just said, unfortunately for emotionally disturbed children uh, are exposed to compliance-based point and level systems throughout the country. And, and that's true. Uh, a lot of these approaches that really, I mean, I would say not only aren't evidence-based, but are uh, causing difficulty for a lot of kids, um, you know, Kat. So there's a lot of change that needs to happen. Uh, Leonard says that I spent 27 years in law enforcement uh, and the universe called me as uh, education as well. And and I've talked to Leonard before and I know that that to be true. And, you know, so, you know, again, I used to not be the person that would say the universe is calling us, but I feel like there's a number of people. Angie, I think about a number of people that we, we know together, um, uh, you know, maybe there's a big movement here of people that are being called. A lot of people in our <laughs> audience as well. Uh, and speaking of which, uh, Jennifer Abinat, um, curious parents get things moving. Yep, absolutely. Oh, look at this. Uh, how about Jody? Hey, Jody. Uh, Jody from Virginia uh, joining us as well. Oh, we had a lot of comments here. So I'm just going to get through a few more here. Um, I think he'll be back soon, guys. If I know Guy, his stress response system is activated right now with being frozen. All right, so it's just me. So I can definitely respond to some of these discussions around punitive and exclusionary discipline. Um, it's, I think, <laughs> hey, Dustin, I think it's really interesting to think about I mean, to me, there's always a direct correlation with teacher regulation and punitive exclusionary discipline. So I always wonder why we're sending students out of the room, why we're sending a student to someone who is not us. Um, something that I always told my students when I was a teacher is that there's nowhere that I'm going to send you because, first of all, we have all the strategies we need to calm down and regulate in our classroom. Two, we have a space to calm down in our classroom and a space to take space if we need it. And three, I'm the closest proximity to like a caregiver than my principal. Uh, 
Okay, uh, I had a, a bit of a technical issue here, and uh, I don't know if I'm back or not. Angie, can you hear me? You're back. Yeah, I was just I was I'm responding back. to the um, discussion around like exclusionary discipline, so I just kind of started taking over. But I'm so glad awesome, you're back. Awesome, 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 awesome. <laughs> well, you know, I've never had quite this kind of problem before. Right now, I'm connected through my cell phone, so um, hopefully, the cell phone will keep us connected, and we'll just we'll just try it at that. Um, but thank you for jumping. And continue yeah. on. Uh, I was trying to look at the the comments here. We we got a lot of great comments. Uh, you know, people talking about Sandy mentioned uh, Sandy Lerman mentioned community care. Uh, Jody uh, said, "Let's see. I'm in a new school this year and seeing so many falling back to exclusionary discipline. Uh, that's probably what you were addressing there as a reaction mm -hmm. to behavior. Uh, and those exclusionary uh, practices, of course." Um, are really harmful, are harmful. And, and, you know, when we think about a lot of the things that happen to kids, and, and I would say don't do kids, restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment, uh, you know, all of these things are further traumatizing kids that typically have trauma histories. And, and from my experience, they, they lead to more, not less behavior. So very often these approaches that people fall back to are not only not helping, they're making things worse. Um, but why do you think that is? I mean, why do you think that, um, you know, when, when times are tough, that people fall back to things, even if they're not working? Well, I was sharing that I think there's always, I, you know, there's always a wondering around why students are being excluded. My main push when I started this position and, you know, fortunately have the alignment of my leadership team and my boss, my principal, is that we need to maximize time in classrooms. We need to equip teachers with tools to respond to behavior. Um, and we need to make sure that we are maximizing time in, in the room. Uh, there's, you know, there's nowhere that's else that's going to be helpful for a student to re-engage with learning out like outside of their room. Um, I also think sometimes when we're talking about students with disabilities, um, it, you know, we have to look within, we have to think about, are we differentiating the work, the academic demands appropriately to meet student need, you know, because chances are if a student isn't able to engage from an empowered place, then they're going to do something that is more preferred, which is not be in their learning community. So what role do we have to mm -hmm. make sure that we are like engaging students in a way that helps them feel, you know, included from the real inclusion lens. And then I was also just saying like, as our stress response level, you know, increases, um, we resort to ineffective, outcomes and ineffective practices because we don't know what else to do. And so I ultimately think it becomes like a right. teacher capacity issue. Yeah. You know, I often say that, it, you know, um, and I think, you know, um, because we've had a lot of conversations, you know, uh, I'm very empathetic towards teachers, staff, towards, you know, how do we better support, you know, educators, uh, you know, um, and others in the classroom and, you know, I think the challenge is if you don't, if you can't imagine another solution, you can't imagine another solution, right? Um, so if you've not been exposed to uh, better alternatives, um, it's all that you know. And, you know, that's where programs like the Supplied Educational Neuroscience Program, you know, comes into play. That's where building that community comes into play. There's so many things that we can do uh, to help support people, but sometimes it means shifting away from the things that aren't working, Right. Yeah, I, I also think like, you know, the people on this call are obviously people, you know, if you're working in schools like Jody, I know, you know, you're a disruptor, right? So if there are students that are systematically excluded and probably like 
the intersectionality of race and disability mm-hmm. is something that should be considered here, right? Which Absolutely. then becomes an equity issue. So we have to reflect on as educational leaders, like what role are we playing in disrupting, actively disrupting and dismantling those inequities? And that mm-hmm. might look like having a courageous conversation with a colleague, like, hey, I noticed that, hmm, is outside of the classroom a lot. Do you need some help figuring out strategies to support them? Or like, you know, just engaging in those conversations so that we're not, you know, being bystanders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, it, it looks like you did a really good job when I disappeared on you. Uh, and a couple of people made uh, comments here. Uh, Jennifer said, you have this. And uh, <laughs> and uh, Shelly said, Angie, that was a really good response to the situation. So thank you for your, uh, your flexibility. I apologize about the technical issues here. Um, I do have one more um, or maybe two more. Um, questions here that are popping up from people. But then I want to get on with the rest of your story. I want to talk about how you shifted and why you shifted uh, your focus from a classroom teacher into SEL. Uh, so uh, from Jennifer, uh, how do you handle situations where the teacher slash staff say, we have to remove the student because they are disrupting the entire class? Um, this is often their reason, which in my opinion is unacceptable because we know there are ways to ensure that things don't arise to that level. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a couple ways to go. Um, I think teacher reflection is necessary, right? So like why is, like when I hear a, about a behavior, my first question is, well, why? Like, why is a student disrupting class? what are they trying to communicate in their disruption? Are they trying to communicate? I don't want to do this because it's too hard. I don't want to be in here because I don't feel welcome. Like what is the underlying communication? Or I can't, right. Or I can't do it. Right. Or I can't. And then again, (laughs) the responsibility falls on the teacher to provide the scaffolds and reframe, right? Like that's another social emotional learning strategy of the reframing of the thinking of like, instead of saying, I can't let's say instead I need some help, but I'll try to get started, right? right? So it's like interrogating that idea of like, well, why? Why is this student disrupting the class repeatedly? And then also holding teachers accountable with their tier one proactive strategies in community building. You know, a a really great quote from Dr. Laurie or like a reflection question that I've, that I heard from the, the neuroscience class is what is the like thinking about the classroom climate, it when you enter a room, is it in a state of regulation or dysregulation? And then how is that conducive to learning or not? Especially when we think of our more um, neurodiverse or, you know, not neurotypical students. So, you know, just kind of asking the why and always right. using the using data, I think, is something that's really important. And and also starting with yourself. Right. Because like yeah. before you're checking in with others and asking why they're why six black boys are in the hallway doing small group work every day during literacy, you might want to look within first and say, what does what do my equity practices look like? What does my discipline practice look like? Am I not, mm-hmm. and I am a play in am I in a place to model leadership? Am I walking the walk? And if I am, then I think you you should be empowered to try again to dismantle those Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, mindsets. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I had a a long comment here from our our friend Floyd. Uh, Floyd said, often when I've heard of or observed the idea of modeling, uh, I usually have observed it as a tool of coercion. Uh, We do that. uh, We do what we want to see in the world 
and then celebrate those that do uh, the right way and discipline the folks that don't. I've started to shift my thoughts around this topic from modeling to embodying uh, my values and supporting others and embodying their own values. Uh, I don't want to be in a space where people uh, do what I can do, but rather what they can do. That's a, that's a great point from Floyd. And Floyd is always uh, very, very thoughtful about things. That's an interesting uh, um, you know, take on on that. I agree. And Floyd, I feel like that that makes so much sense because we also have to think about culture right. and how culture and lived student identity and experience impacts how students show up in their classroom. And that my culture and my skin I'm in and my lived experience is not the same like as any of my students. And therefore, how they're going to show up is going to be completely different, not because it's wrong, but because it's a different embodiment of the skin that they're in and, and they're, you know, what's led them mm-hmm, to that mm-hmm. moment. And mm-hmm, so that's mm-hmm. why I think we also have to reflect on like when we're seeking like reg- regulation in a student or co-regulation, it has to have that like culturally responsive component of like mm, me in point. a regulated state is going to look different than Floyd's regulation. Um, so I think that's just like really important. And really, again, like that equity component of like every learner is different and every learner is not for me like a white presenting biracial woman from washington mm-hmm. dc with you know all these other intersectionalities mm-hmm. uh so so I, I think what you said uh floyd said yes 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 so i think that really resonated with him uh leonard had a uh, comment here uh what are your thoughts um or response to a teacher who says a child is playing you a child is manipulating you uh and we hear that a lot right we we often make the worst intent uh, assumptions about children uh, rather than giving them the benefit of the doubt and, and often go to, it's intentional, right? Uh, and, and people think often that all behavior is intentional. And we know now that it's not. We know there's a lot of different things that might drive a behavior. So what are your thoughts on that? If you had an educator that came to you in your role and said, hey, you know, this kid's just playing me. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have seen and said that people are being played out by children. And what I mean by playing, being played out by a kid is that there is intentional pushing of boundaries um, and not adhering to boundaries, typically because the educator is not withholding those boundaries and expectations with consistency. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the educator is getting played by the kids. And typically it occurs in like a group dynamic. That's my experience, right? So I think, again, it falls back on the educator to reflect on like, if I'm getting played out by 80% of my class, then what are the moves that I'm making? And what consistency am I missing? What accountability measures or high expectations am I not maintaining? That's helping perpetuate that. When it comes to something like manipulation, that again, makes me ponder like, what is manipulation? What is the manipulative behavior that you're referring to? And if you're referring to something as savvy as manipulation, then really, if we, again, think about our belief about children, if a child is exhibiting a very, very savvy, like maladaptive coping strategy of manipulation, it's likely a learned behavior, right? And then again, the onus does not fall on the child who has learned the maladaptive behavior, but the onus falls on the adult to proactively or responsively teach the necessary skills to replace what am I seeking when I'm trying to manipulate? Am I trying to get my way? Well, what are some better ways that I can communicate trying to get my way and Mm -hmm. equipping the kids with that repetition? Um, So again, it's like, you know, those, when we're really thinking about that language, like what explicitly are we referring to? Because sometimes Mm -hmm. we make blanket statements about children that aren't 
objective. Right, 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 right. So um, we, we, we've had a lot of uh, great comments and uh, I want to I want to get away from them for a second, though, and, and kind of go on a little bit more in your story. Uh, but it's great to see all this interaction. Uh, I think people are really excited about what you have to share. Um, so you're a classroom teacher. You're doing things that you've learned through your trauma informed journey, through your neuroscience. Uh, and, and then you begin to see another need. Uh, talk to me about how you went from a classroom teacher uh, to your current role and what your what drove that and what you're hoping to see come out of that. So it wasn't that I saw another need. It was that I knew the needs that I saw in my classroom were happening in every classroom. So what typical kind of how my career trajectory went was like I became the teacher where I'm like, give me the hardest kids. And like, I will build the most positive relationship with them. Like we will be engaged in extracurriculars by the end of the year. Our academic achievement Mm -hmm. will increase. Like you're going to feel a sense of belonging. Like let's, let's go. Like, let's really do it because these practices, these practices were so effective. Right. And so what I, you know, I just began to really like gain my confidence and I began to see like the data, right. Increased academic achievement. I had a student One of my favorite students of all time in the beginning of third grade, he was out of the classroom eloping and avoiding 80% of his, of his day, 80% of the day with chronic attendance issues, um, you know, would punch holes in the wall by the end of the school year, or even by midway in the school year in the classroom, 100% of the time, again, attending multiple extracurricular activities, classroom leader, leading classroom in in regulation strategies. So I just began to see not only that this could work in my classroom, but that if all teachers had these strategies and this mindset, that we could maybe start to change our education system, right? Like we could maybe make a big dent because not only would I have students with increased time in the classroom that really changed their school trajectory, but like also students who were in child study for disabilities because they might've experienced acute trauma, but because they had a very strong relationship with their teacher, a strong family partnership, they were out of the special education trajectory and their academic achievement increased, right? So it doesn't just affect like the behavioral outcomes of children, but it affects like their academic outcomes and their school experience. And if we can change the trajectory of a kid's school experience, you talked about the school to prison pipeline, like, what if you can make an impact where like you can make that change, right? Like right, how, right. how great could, could we, the great work that we could do. Right. So that's why right. I was just like, here's my data. Here's my experience. Like, let's, let's go. Let's, let's get this for everybody. Let's, let's get to work. Right. So, so I got to jump in on that, that real quick. Um, you know, you, you make the change. Uh, you know, it reminds me of a, a comment that my friend, uh, Susan Hopkins, who works with us, George Anchor, uh, with self-reg in the merit center. Um, you know, we often find that teachers and, and others are looking for tools and strategies. Uh, but Susan had this great quote where she said, you are the strategy, you know, it's you, you you're the strategy. And, and, you know, what you, how you launched into that was talking about what's near and dear to my heart, which is relationships. Uh, you know, um, I'm not the only one that says it, but you know, when I think about the three R's of education, it's relationship, relationship, relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, relationship is what can support a kid who has had complex trauma, generational trauma, who is as, as a disability and has not been understood. Um, those relationships can be the um, 
the difference between success and a child that ends up on the wrong path. Um, you know, so I, I love your emphasis on that. And, you know, I, you sometimes hear like, well, we don't have time for relationships. We don't have time to build relationships with, with 25 kids. Um, you know, and, and the truth is that there's a lot of kids that um, don't have the same needs. I mean, you know, maybe it's three or four kids that really need that extra work and that extra relationship. I mean, all kids are going to benefit, right? Um, but, you know, I think it's so important, even if it feels overwhelming, to make that investment. Uh, so, so what, what, what brought you to that? I mean, you know, or was that just always who you were was, was trying to build the relationships? Well, I was always very relationship driven, um, with children. I mean, I, I think at this point when it comes to education, given where our educational system is, if educators are not willing to build relation, authentic relationships with children and with authentic, students, authentic, such an yeah. important word, right? They, they, yeah. You know, when, when I hear things like therapeutic relationship, kids, kids are the biggest, excuse my language, bullshit detectors in the oh, world. Yeah. If you're, you know, faking a relationship, you might as well not even make the effort. You know, it right. takes an authentic relationship. Exactly. And if, and if you don't have the capacity or the willingness or the desire to build authentic relationships with the humans that you're teaching at this right. point in education, you should not be in education. I, I really right. think that. I really think that like where we are post-pandemic, given where society is and what we know a lot of our kids are coming in with, we just it's just not a choice. Teaching is not you show up, you teach all day and you go home. It's it's a lot more than that. So I was always relationship driven. That always was one of my core, you know, drives. Um, but I again, it's like the research. I think Bruce Perry, you know, Bruce Perry's yep. work, like everything, you know, that started to come out of the pages was like relationships repetition yeah. you know and i'm just like right 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 what's the quote the greatest uh you know therapy is human love and connection right exactly yeah yeah um so so shelly uh you, i've said this many times as well uh you don't have time not to build relationships with students uh of course our friend dustin dustin great to, to have you here uh relationships are foundation of what we do and who we are uh, and that's where we build safety. And of course, safety is foundational. If a kid doesn't feel safe, a kid can't learn. And not access yes, the learning part of their brain. Hi, yeah, and, and look Lurie. who we have. We have Dr. Lori here. <laughs> um, so so we, we've been talking a lot about you, Dr. Lori. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have to talk about your, your upcoming book here as well. Uh, but great to have you here. Um, so so let, let's continue on this for a second. Um, so you saw the need in your classroom and then you knew that others were having that need. How did this turn into a, a new position and what are you doing in your current position? So um, basically I campaigned for my principal, um, who is amazing, um, you know, saw the, you know, was really bought into my work. Um, I also on the side, it wasn't just like I was in my classroom. I was, you know, walking the walk. I was also writing and creating things. I was creating summer projects to model the power of community, how to build community in a pandemic. I was doing all of these side projects. Um, I created like a wellness team centered in like adult regulation. I just kept creating these committees, creating these documents, uh, quoting all this research. And I just was like that person because it works. And I, and I right. was leading PDs. And so I was already becoming, you know, the trauma person at my school, the the classroom management person, the SEL person. Um, and 
I just, you know, kept reiterating, like, just give me, just give me a chance, like, give me a chance to do this on a big picture scale. And I promise you, like, I can start to make a real impact. Let me, you know, zoom out. Uh, and, you know, not only did I have the student data, the, the relationships, um, with students and walking that walk, um, but also like, you know, really applying my leadership through sharing research, professional development and things like that. Um, and they, you know, it took a lot, uh, but the position was um, created. And then, yeah, my day to day is pretty crazy. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I'm going to make some, uh, you know, guesses here, but I mean, I think, so let me rephrase, reframe this a little bit. Uh, I know and have met amazing educators that are doing fantastic work uh, in their schools uh, that have been very successful in reducing restraint seclusion, moving away from punitive practices that have been um, really provided some leadership in, in the schools that they've been in. And uh, their stories are not always the same. It's not always appreciated. Uh, and I hate to say that, but, yeah. uh, you know, we find cases where teachers are trying to, and, and I think about a teacher that I mentioned earlier, teachers are trying to bring about positive change and the system pushes against them. Um, now, when I think about your success, uh, and I'm just looking from an outsider that, that, that knows a bit about you, uh, I think that your success could be attributed in part to persistence. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, when I think about you, Angie, you are not going away. You are going to be persistent. Mm -hmm. um, but you're also, I think, uh, a really, um, you know, I hate to say the word salesperson, but I think that you're good at selling your ideas and selling your ideas is important. If you can't sell your ideas to others, um, it's hard to get people to move in the right direction. But thinking about that first problem, I mean, I even know educators that have done amazing work that have had been retaliated against because mm -hmm. they're pushing against a system that doesn't want to change. What yeah. is your advice for somebody? I mean, you know, you and, and, and you know, it wasn't just that you were I mean, maybe you had a, a better administrator and you had a better a team there that was more receptive and that can make a difference. Mm -hmm. But it does. But, you yeah. know, cer certainly your persistence and the things that you did got you there. What advice might you have for an educator that's running against that? It's running against, um, you know, trying to make change, but not being supported. Yeah. I mean, again, like I think just like we tell our learners, like the power of community is really helpful to build that resilience. And um, right. I mean, I also heard no a lot. I heard no a lot. Um, and I was rejected for right. this position. The proposal was rejected. Um, I experienced a lot of rejection. Um, and it did not deter me because I know that in order to be like a change maker, you're going to hear no. Uh, but if you believe in, you know, your purpose and the, the truly, it's not even about me, but it's about, I believe so much in the work that it, it doesn't matter how many times you hear, no, you just have to keep going. Um, but I do think, you know, when it comes to alignment, um, and, you know, thinking about sustainability for self, it really is important to find some allies mm -hmm. somewhere, either in the school system um, you know, colleagues at your school, because chances are with this research, I mean, unless you're in a very, I just can't imagine that there would be not one person in a school building that would be able to catch on and buy into this stuff. Right. If right, you, right. And so, so I think like not working in a silo and continuing to move the work forward, model, model, model. And I think one of the reasons that I've been so effective in my role now is because I was a teacher 
mm-hmm. in the school that I'm working okay. in. So right. teachers know that I'm, I've, I've really walked the walk and walking the walk of a teacher with getting some of the hardest kids in the school right. gets a lot of buy-in. And when you add that with the research, Absolutely. Um, people can't say that doesn't work because you're living walking proof that it works. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's a great point about finding, finding allies. Right. And, and even though you might feel alone, you know, if you can win over one and win over another, uh, you know, I think about all the times I've given away copies of books to people. Uh, you know, I can imagine, you know, passing somebody, you know, connections over compliance or whatever it may be and, and, and getting a conversation started or maybe having a book club, you know, at the school and getting, people to talk about some of these concepts, but change is hard. And sometimes resist, you know, systems are resistant to that change. Uh, and, and I told you earlier that we have people from all over the world and Linda, thank you. Linda is my, I can count on Linda uh, to tune in from New Zealand where it's, I'm going to get it wrong, Linda. I know it's probably eight or nine <laughs> o'clock in the morning there uh, tomorrow. So it's already Friday morning there, uh, but we really do have a, a great, uh, in fact, uh, you know, Linda did some work with, um, you know, Bruce Perry as well. So we've got this wow. great community that, that goes beyond the, you know, the United States and uh, kind of an international community. Uh, Dustin, of course, talked about persistence uh, and uh, being a louder voice uh, is what's going to change these systems uh, and no longer serving our communities. And and sometimes it's not even louder, but it's it's being able to change the thoughts and ideas of the right people, right? So sometimes you can do that through persuasion, but um, I think persistence is so key. Uh, and of course, Lori says yes. And, and uh, uh, Dustin uh, gave you uh, a 100% yes as well. <laughs> um, so now that you're, you're doing this work, um, are, you, are you finding, are, are there other schools that have similar roles to this or... You know, have you written anything that, that talks about kind of the roadmap to what you were doing and why you were doing it? Because um, it sounds like this has been really beneficial um, to your school. So how do we get, you know, others kind of moving in that direction as well? Oh, that's a great question. That's a really good question. And one that I haven't had the chance to dig into too much yet. I mean, I think a roadmap would be you, helpful. You, you, see, you see where I'm headed with this, right? You, you see where I'm headed. I mean, I can yeah, imagine I do. an article that you write. I can, I can imagine a presentation about this. <laughs> but, but, you know, really, I mean, you know, when we talk about, you know, we sometimes talk about being disruptors and disrupting the system. You know, yeah. we need to take stories like yours and get them out there to people about uh, the kind of change. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's a great thing to, to think about, you know, moving forward. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, definitely something to think about. To answer the first question, I don't think that there are roles like my role, um, to my knowledge, in at least in DC. Um, there's still a lot of, and this is where, like, you know, old, I don't know, I can't, I'm trying to think of some kind of, you know, lovely little phrase, but, but it's like, you know, old habits die hard, maybe. Right, so it's typically right. when I was, you know, because I did tell my school, I was like, look, I either want this position here or I'm going to go somewhere else and try to find right. what I'm looking for. So when I was looking, you know, right. there's still a lot of Dean um, coordinator of school culture, I think is one or like culture coordinator, um, behavior technician, behavior specialist. And n- none of those encompass, in my opinion, like what the work that I've feel like I'm doing with social emotional learning specialists, the opportunity to coach teachers, work with administrators, do big picture strategic planning and work with students. 
pushing in with students, pulling small groups with students, working one-on-one with students. Like, you know, we're really talking about getting in there and being proactive and responsive, but it sounds like a lot of those things are still rooted in the, in the reaction, reaction lane. Oh, that's a cool question, Shelly. Inventing the federal department of ed people. I don't know what that would look like. I run around all day. They'd have to just wear sneakers and follow me around. <laughs> Let's see if Guy heads back soon. Oh, Jennifer, thank you for sharing. And Jennifer, I actually wanted to answer one of your questions. Um, you asked about, oh, hey, guy. Sorry, I was going to answer one of Jennifer's old qu- other questions. Oh, no, no, please, please do. Yep. I, I could hear you, but you couldn't hear me, but go ahead. Oh, okay, perfect. So, Jennifer, yeah. Yep. I mean, first of all, thank you for sharing that. I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, I did want to just respond to a question that you had about creating culture with students. And it's interesting that you say that because if anyone is coming to the um, Creating Trauma-Sensitive Schools conference, I am literally presenting on that topic, how to co-create a community, um, an equity-driven trauma-informed community. Um, And there are definitely practices that, like when I create my classroom community, we do everything together. We... I mean, we don't set up the classroom together because they have to come into a set up classroom, but like we co-create our norms. Everyone signs them, including me. We co-create our regulation strategies. Um, we co-create, you know, our expectations. Uh, we co-create just everything is like collaborative. So um, to answer your question, if we're not talking about like compliance and like you should do this, you should do this. It's like, what do we expect to have? How can we thrive in a community together and work together to create expectations that we can all agree to, including the adults? Something I always tell kids is like, every expectation I ask you to do, I will do. So like, there's nothing in here that, that like, I'm not going to also uphold. So, um, uh, thank, thank you for that. And, um, you know, I just wanted to go back to what we were talking about earlier. Um, and I just shared the link to the Attachment Trauma Network conference. And of course, not only will you be there, I'll be there. Jody will be there. Dustin yes. will be there. We've got an amazing group of people that are going to be at that event. Uh, so, you know, if you're an educator, or a paraprofessional, or administrator, whatever it may be, uh, look up the Attachment Trauma Network conference. Parents, I mean, in anyone that's interested in coming, uh, it's a really great event uh, that's out there. Um but I, you know, I, I'm just thinking, you know, I'd, I'd love to see maybe a future presentation from you on this idea of like creating the change that you're, you know, trying to see in the, you know, trying to say creating the kind of position that you um, created there, um, you know, with uh, with your school. So, you know, may, maybe a future conference. I'll, I'll hear you talking about that because I think love that idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think there's a big need for it. Well, listen, we are getting right about time. And given the technical issues that we've had. Um, I want to, uh, one, thank you for, for being part of this conversation. Um, you know, it's been a privilege to, to know you and get to, you know, collaborate with you on things. And uh, the work that you're doing is, I know it's fulfilling because you're making differences for kids. <laughs> you're, you're doing things that, you know, there are kids that you're going to be seeing in 10 years from now that, you know, you've made a difference in their life. And uh, the work that you're doing is really meaningful. So thank you for, for all you do. Thank you for spending the time with us today. 
Uh, I want to give you an opportunity. If there's any kind of final words you want to leave us with or uh, any, any last wisdom that you'd like to uh, share with us, uh, let me give you the, the final word here. Um, I just want to like, again, walk the walk and say that something that I haven't been doing as much is leaning into my trauma network and community. So I just am asking my trauma peeps out there, let's stay connected. Um, I look forward to hopefully seeing some of you guys at the trauma conference. Um, and I just really appreciate, uh, the engagement and guy, you are such a hardworking amazing soul. So I really appreciate the the chance to work with you and uh, just talk about this work. I get so fired up. So, you know, thank you. And thanks uh, everyone a- for engaging. Absolutely. And, and we, we had a great group today. Uh, and I, I really appreciate everybody being so engaged. You know, uh, when we do these live events, it, it's really exciting to see so many people weighing in and asking questions and, and providing comments. Um, and a lot of great thank yous here as well. Uh, in fact, we're, we're getting them moving through here. Um, so thank you so much for being here today. Normally I would, uh, shift my screen and show who's coming up next week, but given the technical issues I've having, I'm just going to say, be here again in two weeks. We have another great speaker lined up. And, uh, unfortunately because Facebook is blocked right now, I don't have that in front of me. Um, but I'm glad we got through this. Angie, thank you for your flexibility when, when the system kind of broke on us here. Uh, that's never happened before, but if it was going to happen, I was glad it was you because you, you seem to just kind of roll with it. So um, thank you for, for that. <laughs> no problem. And, um, uh, I look forward to continuing to work with you and connect with you and uh, continue working shoulder to shoulder with you and so many people that are making positive change in the world. It's going to have it. It's going to make a difference. So yeah. thank you much. Uh, we'll see you again. Um, see you in Houston. See, see you in Houston in person. It's funny, you know, cause we're not that far <laughs> away from each other and, I know. Uh, you know, not met you in person, but I'll meet you in person in Houston, but um, thanks so much and goodbye everybody. Take care. Bye guys. Thank you.